morning, you can take it now and open up. We're in the middle of a series in the book of Revelation, last book in the Bible. So all you got to do is turn to the very end and uh, then move back a few pages. Today, we're looking at chapter 13 and then 14, 1 through 5. So 13, 1 through 14, 5. If you don't have a Bible, there's some out on the info table. If you don't own one, would love for you to take one of those as you head out today. And uh, also, the text is right here behind me. Wow, as soon as I said that, boom, it was up. Well done. Um, And uh, so you can follow along right there. So Claire's going to come and read for us. Let's turn our attention to God's word this morning as it's read. Revelations 13. And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard, its feet were like a bear's, and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. One of its heads seems to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed, and the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. And they worshipped the dragon, for he had given authority to the beast. And they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who can fight against it? And the beast was given a mouth, uttering haughty and blasphemous words. And it was allowed to exercise authority for forty-two months. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. Also, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation, and all who dwell on earth will worship it, and everyone whose name has not been written in the book, uh, written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to take uh, to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword he must be slain. Here is a call for the endurance and the faith of the saints. Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, and it spoke like a dragon. It exercises all authority of the first beast and in its presence and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose mortal wound was healed. It performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of people. And by the signs that it was allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on earth, telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. And it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. It also causes all, both the small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead so that no one can buy and sell unless he has the mark, that is, the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdoms. Let one for wisdom... Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is 666. Then I looked, and behold, on the Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000 who had his name and the Father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. The voice I heard was that of the sound of harpists playing their harps. 
And they were singing a new song before the throne, before the four living creatures, and before the elders. No one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from earth. It is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. It is these who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as first fruits, first fruits for God and the Lamb. And in their mouth no lie was found, for they were blameless. This is the word of God. So last week we began this midsection of Revelation by looking at the dragon. And we saw that in many ways, Revelation uses the stuff of fantasy, the themes and images that we all heard growing up when we were children from uh, fantasy stories and fairy tales that we read or were read to us by our parents. And if we're enlightened individuals, we will still read fairy tales and fantasies like that and enjoy them, as I hope you all do. And in Revelation, again and again, we see these images cropping up that symbolize for us the truth that the prophet John wants us to understand. This is symbolic literature. Another word is apocalyptic literature, meaning that it's driven by images and symbols. And so that continues this morning. Last week, we saw the dragon introduced. And this week, we see introduced two more creatures of darkness, these two beasts that we read about in Revelation 13. And one thing Revelation reminds us of again and again is that the great battle of history taking place behind the scenes of the universe is in a sense revealed to us in Revelation. God pulls back the canopy of the physical world and shows us the deeper spiritual realities that pervade our society. And the great spiritual battle that is even now being waged among us and around the world is the battle of the kingdom of God and of Jesus Christ against the kingdom of the dragon, of the devil himself, of the evil one. And today we're going to read about two agents of the dragon's power, a beast rising from the sea and a beast rising from the earth. Both of these creatures, symbolically portrayed here by John, represent and are backed by the dragon. They're empowered by the devil and both seek to deceive and destroy God's people in the world. And these symbols are applicable and meaningful for us today without question. The spirit is teaching us here. And so here's how I want to summarize these verses for us together this morning. The dragon uses the power of the state and the deceit of false religion to persecute and deceive the people of God. That's a loaded phrase. So we're going to do our best to look at it this morning. Four parts this morning. The counterfeiters is what we're going to talk about first. And then we'll look at the beast from the sea, the beast from the land, and then finally, the song of the saints. Okay, so first, the counterfeiters. Really what I want to do initially is just give you a big picture view as to what John is doing here in these chapters. Really chapters 13 through around 16 introduces us to the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet. That's another name for the second beast, the beast that rises from the land. And it's important to understand that these three evil beings in Revelation form um, an unholy trio, They are working and attempting to counterfeit and to mimic the work of the Holy Trinity, 
the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And they are attempting to counterfeit the work of the Trinity to further their work of deception in the world. And so I just want to give you a real quick overview overview before we move on and just point out where we can see that in these verses. If you look in 13.1, you'll see that the beast rising out of the sea is strikingly similar to the dragon of chapter 12 that we looked at last week. In fact, he is an image of the dragon. He gets his authority, we read in verse 2, from the dragon. In fact, um, this is a counterfeit. The beast from the sea is intended to be a counterfeit of how Jesus, the son, is the image of God the Father, which we read about in Colossians 1 and elsewhere, and how Jesus gets authority from his father. The beast has 10 crowns, we see in verse 1, while Jesus is described later in Revelation as having many crowns. The beast has blasphemous names, while Jesus has worthy names. The beast has a fatal wound, we read, that has been healed. That's intended to be a counterfeit of the resurrection of Christ. Most of the people that worship the beast worship him because this wound seems to have been healed. Just as people today and throughout history who worship Jesus, worship Jesus largely because he was raised from the dead. So the overarching point of these counterfeits is that the devil is attempting to imitate so as to deceive. The beast from the sea is a counterfeit of Jesus. And we see the same thing with the second beast or the false prophet. He is a counterfeit of the Holy Spirit. If you'll look at those verses, you'll see that he is described as exercising the authority of the first beast, just as the Holy Spirit exercises the authority of Jesus. The second beast wants people to worship the first beast there in verse 12. He works miracles, verse 13. He even seals his subjects with this number, 666. We'll talk about that later, so don't get all worked up right now. He, just as the Holy Spirit seals his subjects and is a seal, in fact, and causes people to want to worship Jesus and works miracles. So again, John is setting up this parallel between the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, and this unholy trio of the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet. And in doing so, what we see is that Satan works by deception, He is always attempting to make his ways look attractive to the people of the earth. In uh, the Chronicles of Narnia, the last book called The Last Battle, don't nod your heads like you knew I was going there. I see you. Um, See, you made me lose my train of thought. My goodness. So in The Last Battle, um, there's one of the main characters. The bad guy in that book is a monkey named Shift. And um, Shift dresses up like a lion like Aslan, and attempts to deceive many Narnians. And C.S. Lewis calls him the cleverest, ugliest, most wrinkled ape you could imagine. And later in the book, Shift says to those who question his commands, at one point he says this, what do you know about freedom? You think freedom means doing what you like. Well, you're wrong. That isn't true freedom. True freedom means doing what I tell you. And what Lewis is doing is paralleling, really, in a sense, what we see here in Revelation. The devil and his forces attempt to do with us just what Shift attempted to do with his followers. They attempt to enslave and dominate us through deception. 
So how exactly does that happen? That's the question that chapter 13 helps us to answer. And so we see the counterfeiters at work. But now I want to ask, what do these two beasts actually represent? Or how do we actually fall under the power of the beast as Satan attempts to deceive the people of the world? So let's look together. Second, I want to show you the beast of the sea. You see him in verses 1 through 10 of chapter 13. And the beast rising out of the sea, very forthrightly, represents symbolically, this isn't a real actual beast that's going to come one day later in history. It's a symbol that represents the persecuting power of the state or governmental power that is empowered by the dragon. Okay, what John is doing here is what he's always doing. He's using Old Testament images for his ideas. And in the Old Testament, generally, every single time there's a reference in the prophets or in Job or somewhere else to a sea monster or a sea beast, it is always a reference to an evil nation that opposed God's plan and God's people. But in particular, the beast here in Revelation 13 flows directly from the prophet Daniel. Daniel chapter 7, verses 1 through 8 in particular. If you go and read those verses, you will see four very similar beasts described. And each of those beasts are explicitly linked in that chapter with four world empires throughout history. Babylon, Persia, Greece, and lastly, Rome. And Daniel was prophesying, correctly, I might add, prophesying during the Persian Empire about the domination and then fall of all of those empires. And basically what he was saying is that the kingdom of the Son of Man will outstrip and subdue all of these world empires eventually. And so John is drawing on Daniel 7, and what he is doing is using all of that language and all of that symbolism and consolidating it into one mega image. He's consolidating it into this mega image of the beast of the sea, who represents, just as sea monsters always do in the Old Testament, the power of the state to oppose and harm the purposes of God and God's kingdom. Okay, so the beast of the sea is a composite of all empires throughout history who have stood against God and against God's people. In John's day, that was Rome. In our day, it's Beijing, Baghdad, London, and yes, even Washington. The beast represents the tendencies in human governments to see themselves as ultimate, which is the essence of anti-Christ. We see many examples of this in the Bible. In that same book, Daniel, the first half of that book is stories, the second half is prophecy. In the first half, in Daniel 3, there's a very famous story about Daniel and his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. It's one of the great stories in the Old Testament. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego get into trouble because the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, passes a law by divine edict. He thinks he's divine. By ultimate monarchical decree that everyone must bow at a certain time of the day to this huge golden image of himself, of Nebuchadnezzar, that is being built in the middle of the Babylonian town square. 
And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, of course, refused to do so and eventually are thrown into the fiery furnace and rescued there by the pre-incarnate Jesus. But for our purposes, I want you to hear this quote from Daniel 3. This is straight out of the Bible. Here's what Nebuchadnezzar says. You are commanded, O peoples, to fall down and worship the golden image that I, King Nebuchadnezzar, have set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. So Nebuchadnezzar represented the power of worldly empires, the power of human governments and the state to demand worship from its subjects. That's what this beast is all about. He symbolizes state power that stands against God. Okay, now we're going to look at the beast of the land, the partner of the beast of the sea, and then we're going to take some time to apply this, okay? So stick with me. Let's look at the beast of the land or the false prophet. We see about him in 11 through 17. So the beast rising out of the earth He represents false religion. And here's what you need to get. False religion, especially and particularly when it is closely aligned with state and governmental institutions. The second beast tries to get people to worship. He tries to get people to orient their lives around the first beast. Remember, he's the counterfeit Holy Spirit. And just as the Holy Spirit spotlights, so to speak, the ministry of Jesus and effectively enables people to worship Jesus, so this second beast spotlights the counterfeit ministry of the first beast and attempts to force and coerce people to worship the beast. That's what verses 12 through 15 are getting at. He performs these great signs. He makes fire come down from heaven. And in order to deceive those who dwell on the earth, verse 14, and tells them about this wound in the first beast that was healed and yet the beast lived. And it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast. That's all counterfeit language. The whole point of the second beast is to compel people to orient their lives around to worship the first beast. And the second beast, further, we see seals everyone who worships the beast with a mark. And we're told that this mark is a number, 666. And by the way, this is where Revelation, I mean, we've been there for a while, but this is where Revelation gets really weird. Do not Google, what does 666 mean? Don't do it. Bad idea. (laughs) Trust me, I did it this week. Not a good idea. And anything you read, just probably you should disregard. So let me just real briefly give you an aside. Uh, But first, here's what's going on with the branding. Um, The marking image there comes from the very common practice in the ancient Roman world of branding slaves. A slave, when an owner wanted to signify that this slave was his or her property, would brand it or give it a mark, which is not a pleasant image. And of course, that's precisely the point. The point is that the beast brands or claims ownership of or marks those who follow and worship and orient their worlds around the first beast. Now, real quick, 666, what's going on? 666 is most likely, it's not certain, no one really for sure knows, but it's most likely a reference to the emperor Nero, who was the ruler of Babylon, or excuse me, of Rome for a while, um, especially when the wall of, uh, when Jerusalem was taken over in AD 70. But that's likely a reference to Nero, but for sure it is a symbolic number as well that refers to the power of the evil one. Now remember, we've seen in Revelation that seven is the number of completion. 
or wholeness. It's used of Jesus in chapter 1. It said that he has seven crowns on his head. There are seven churches. There are seven stars in his hand. And so if seven is the number of completion and perfection, then six in the cosmological world of ancient Jewish people was one less than seven. So 666 means that the work of the evil one consistently is less than perfect and whole. As one commentator, Vern Poitras says, the beast counterfeits Christ but falls short. That's really the idea behind the 666 imagery. Okay, aside ended, don't Google that. If you want to talk more, come talk to me about it. Um, So the first beast represents the persecuting oppressive power of human governments. And the second beast represents false religions that are in tandem with human governments in attempt to compel people to orient their lives around the government. Now, let me give you two examples to hopefully flesh this out a little bit. And then we're going to try to apply it. Okay. So two historic examples, one from the last century and one from our modern day. The first example is Hitler's Germany, okay? Adolf Hitler became the chancellor of Germany in 1933. And even then, it was well known, he had written this down, it was well known by many Germans that Hitler hated Christianity. He thought it was a weak, facile religion that should be wiped off the face of the earth. But he didn't initially do that overtly. He didn't try to just steamroll all the Christians in the Third Reich. What he did, rather, was very subtle and manipulative. What he did was he gained authority in German churches by planting Nazis in key positions within it. And basically, in a period of 10 years, he made the Protestant Church of Germany into the Church of the Nazis, the Church of the Third Reich. There's a great book called Bonhoeffer by Eric Metaxas that lays this out very helpfully. I would encourage you to read that book if you're interested in this topic. Hitler did this subtly and with the complicity, sadly, of many German pastors. And one thing that he began to do is uproot any Jewishness from the church's worship, even from the church's hymns. So the most famous German hymn is A Mighty Fortress is Our God, right? Lord Sabaoth is his name. Hitler, delete that phrase. It's too Jewish. So this was subtly taking place over time. And really quite a short period of time, so that by the early 40s, basically the German church had been captured by the German state. Now some, like Dietrich Bonhoeffer and Karl Barth, heroically stood against this from the beginning, but they were in the vast minority. Bonhoeffer insightfully wrote, way back in 1933, he wrote this, the question is really Christianity or Germanism, and the sooner the conflict is revealed in the clear light of day, the better. So that's a great historic and tragic historic example of how the beasts work in tandem. A second example is modern day China. As many of you will know, the central communist government in China currently allows freedom of worship for churches and religions as long as you worship in a state registered church. Now, of course, that comes with a certain level of control from the central government. And yet the backbone of the rapidly growing movement of Christianity in China is the unregistered network of house churches all over the country that refuse to be subject to the controls of the government, of the state. 
And some of these churches have grown actually quite large and have become actually centers of the pursuit of religious freedom in communist China. I read this week about one church just outside of the city of Shanghai, one of the major cities in China, that has grown quite large. There's over a thousand people in this church, and it's hard to keep something like that secret, as you might imagine. And their house or wherever they were meeting underground was discovered and reported to governing officials. And so the elders of this very large Chinese church decided to meet sort of in the open public space in their suburb right outside of Shanghai. And they gathered for worship that day. And on the day they were gathered, government officials came by and broke up the worship service and detained 160 people and placed all of the elders under house arrest. So the beasts are alive and well in our day. Do you see that? What these beasts symbolize is how in every age between the first and second coming of Jesus, governments and false religions conspire to frustrate the kingdom of God and the work of the gospel. That is a way that Satan uses his influence. Poitras writes again, the pairing of the two beasts increases the sense of their power and terror. They are superhuman, cosmic, ageless monsters. Okay, so there's a couple of examples of how this plays out in the real world. Now let's try to think about this by way of application. It's very easy for Christians in America, Christians in the Western world, to hear those examples and to think, thank God I don't live in that time or in that place. And by the way, that's an appropriate thing to think to a degree. But remember, Revelation is written for us as well. And so we need to ask, how are the beasts active here in the Western democratic world? How are we prone to worship the beast? How are we tempted? And particularly, how are those who aren't followers of Jesus under the influence of the beast's power and deceit? So I don't want us to be culturally arrogant and think that we are immune to this sort of demonic working. And by the way, I really want you to hear this. Another danger here is that you will come up at this point in the sermon, you will come up internally with great examples for how Others follow the beast, particularly others on the opposite side of whatever your political persuasion may be. And here's what I want you to hear. Conservatives, liberals, middle, don't cares. Here's what I want you to hear. Um, The spirit does not work through the word to help you see where others need to submit to Jesus and trust Jesus more. Do you know that? The spirit works through the word because he wants to help you see where you need to submit to Jesus and trust Jesus more. He wants you to see how the deceptive powers of the evil one might be having an undue impact on your life, not on the life of those that you disagree with politically. Okay? It's very important for you to hear that because our tendency is to think, well, the liberals, they're all, they are worshipers of the beast. Or the conservatives, they're worshipers of the beast. Thank God I'm not a worshiper of the beast. You're missing the whole point. 
So submit yourself to the authority of Scripture. Examine your own heart and don't try to examine the hearts of the people sitting around you. Examine your own heart. And I'll examine my heart. And let's perhaps ask the Spirit to help us see how we might be prone to falling under the power and deceit of the evil one. Okay, that said, here are three ways. And you might be able to come up with more. I'd love to, actually, I don't know if I would love to hear them afterwards, but you're happy to come tell me anyways. Um, Here are three ways that I think we practically can fall under the power of the beast. First, an uncritical over-reliance on the state. Okay? Here's what the scriptures seem to say. Every human government, every human government, although legitimately given authority by God, has a tendency to see itself as ultimate. Every state has a totalizing impulse. Every government more and more wants to be your functional savior. They all want to usurp the role that Jesus alone occupies and deserves. And the government stays the government and retains power by promising to deliver you from whatever functional hell you need to be delivered from. And this is true on the right and on the left. You pay too much in taxes. Well, the government can help you with that. You don't have health care. The government can help you with that. You fear certain types of people and want protection with them from them. The government can help you with that, etc., etc., etc. Now listen, this happens on the right and on the left politically. And if you're on the right, you're temp- tempted right now to demonize the left. And if you're on the left, you're tempted right now to demonize the right in your mind. Don't do that. You need to hear this. Satanic powers and impulses rest behind worldly institutions, including governments all governments. And one way that manifests itself is that the government has an inherent tendency towards seeing itself as ultimate. And so Christians must have a critical, skeptical, I don't think it's too far to say, eye towards government as an institution. Although it is a legitimate institution, Romans 13, it is an institution that always has a totalizing impulse. That's part of what Revelation 13 clearly is getting at. That's first. Second, and somewhat similarly, Christians should have a healthy skepticism towards government programs and plans. It's so hard for me to say that and not think you're leaving thinking Luke's making some radical political statement. I'm not trying to, I'm not even trying to make a general political statement. It's just a fact. Um, the government cannot save you. It cannot be your God. And the essence of governments is that they want all of you And you cannot give yourself to it fully. Can you work in government? Yes. Is being in the military a legitimate, godly uh, role? Yes. But unthoughtful, ultimate pledges of allegiance to the government are a way in which the beast works. And so our allegiance ultimately must not be to the United States. It must not be to any other country. It must be to the kingdom of God. So we should have a healthy skepticism and critical eye towards government programs and plans. Third, Christians should be very wary, that rhymes, Christians should be wary of using beastly means to accomplish kingdom ends. What do I mean? Okay, in my lifetime, in my lifetime, I'm 36 years old, Christians throughout my life 
have repeatedly attempted to do this in the United States. They've attempted to use beastly means to accomplish kingdom ends. We attempt to gain power through governments in order to further kingdom aims and ambitions. And now I know this is a really complex issue on which there is likely significant disagreement in this room, and that's actually something I'm thankful for in our church, that we disagree on some of these things. I know it's very complex. There's a lot of great books out there on this, but I think that this general statement is a fair application of Revelation 13 and 14. Um, We should be wary of attempting to use political, governmental means to accomplish what we think are kingdom ends. And this happens both on the right, with the moral majority, etc., and on the left, with sojourners, Jim Wallace, etc. Here's the point. The desire for power even to create what we think will be a better society. That desire very, very quickly becomes worship of the beast. And this is always going to end badly. So should Christians be in government? Yes. But the kingdom of God grows like a mustard seed. It grows through the foolishness of the gospel. It grows through the cross and not through grabs for power. Jesus did not come the first time with a sword. Jesus came humbly as a servant. And the church should model him in that. So this quest for power by Christians through state-run governmental institutions has never ended well, will not ever end well, and is very easily a way in which we fall under the deceptive power of the evil one. We need to hear this, okay? The beast of the sea, the beast of the land represent this powerful and strong coalition of the total, total, totalizing impulse of the state when especially the cultural milieu and false religions are seeking to place its imprint upon people and move them in that direction. That's what's happening here. That was a very significant issue for John in ancient Rome or the cult of Rome, the cult of the emperor, worshiping the emperor, was very clearly signaling people to give everything they have to make their ultimate allegiance Caesar. But the gospel says that Jesus is Lord. Listen, that is a statement that means many things, but one thing that it certainly means is is it's political. Jesus Christ is the only one to whom our ultimate allegiance must and can go. And when we fail to see that, either in our heads or functionally in the way we're living our lives, we are to some degree or another under the deception of the evil one. This is one of the ways that the devil uses his deceiving power. Okay, lastly, the Song of the Saints, chapter 14, first five verses, really the whole chapter. So Revelation is teaching that sin and evil, these things twist individuals but they also twist systems and structures and societies and governments. That's how the devil gains power and deceives. But we also know, and Revelation's constantly reminding of this, that a new world is coming, and indeed has already been inaugurated in Jesus. And that's what chapter 14 reminds us of. Now we've got to wrap up, but the point of this chapter is that this world system that we're living in now, the one in which the dragon and the beast occupy power, this world is passing away. It will be destroyed. So don't give yourself to it. Rather, give yourself to Jesus and Jesus's gospel. Remember, again and again, we've seen that revelation is all about worship. Revelation is repeatedly asking, what are you centering your life around? 
What orients your affections and your desires and your decisions? And chapter 14 is saying that Jesus and his gospel is what we should center and orient our lives around. And only when we do that will we begin to experience the glory and beauty of his kingdom and of his kingship. We must sing the song of the saints that we read about there in verse 3. It's a song that you can only learn when you're a part of Jesus' family. That's what the 144,000 symbolizes as we've seen before. And it's these who are able to walk through the many trials and difficulties and oppressive persecuting realities of this life and yet see by faith what cannot yet be seen by sight. And that is this, that Jesus will one day return and he will make all things new. He is the only king that deserves and actually demands our ultimate allegiance. And so what are we to do? Well, chapter 14 lays it out. Verse 7, we are to fear God and give him glory. Because the hour of the judgment of the evil one has come, we are to worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. So again, Revelation is Impressing upon you this question, where are you in that right now? What do you worship? Who controls you and guides you? The beast and his hideous and cunning power? Or the lamb who was slain and his love and righteousness? Let me close with this quote from a man named Leslie Newbegin. Newbegin was a missionary in India in the 20th century for about 50 years. He was a British man that returned to the UK after a 50-year stint in India and wrote a lot of really helpful stuff about the mission of the church. And here's what he says. I want to just conclude by reading this. this I thought it was a very helpful quote that summarizes what we're trying to get at in these chapters. The church is the bearer to all the nations of a gospel that announces the kingdom, the reign, and the sovereignty of God. The church calls men and women to repent of their false loyalty to other powers, to become become believers in the one true sovereignty, and so to become corporately a sign, instrument, and foretaste of that sovereignty of the one true and living God over all nature, all nations, and all human lives. The church is not meant to call men and women out of the world into a safe religious enclave, but to call them out in order to send them back as agents of God's kingship. The question of Revelation is, who is it that you are worshiping? What frames your life? What drives your decisions? Is it, it can only be two things ultimately. It's either Jesus and his kingdom or the dragon and his. Follow Jesus, submit to him, He's the only king worth giving yourself to. Let's pray.